What's up, guys? I am here in sunny Medellin, Colombia. It is Wednesday, April 29th. This week on the podcast, I have authors Marta and Mansoor of Permission Blockchains in Action. Marta is the director of ecosystem for Hyperledger, and Mansoor is pursuing his PhD on security for blockchain technology at the University of Cambridge. In the description, you will find a 40% discount for their book, Pod Blockhash 20. You can use this discount code at Manning Publications. The link will again be in the description below. As always, be sure to subscribe if you have not already and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to listen and eventually read more about blockchain, maybe during quarantine. All right, enjoy. This is the Blockhash Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, guys. Um, how are you guys doing today? Good. It's it's a late evening, but it's good. Nice, nice. You guys are in the UK, right? Yes, we are. Indeed. Love so what is it, like 8, 8, 8 o'clock? Uh, it's 9 p.m. today. 9 p.m. Okay, six hours ahead. Cool, cool. Um, so, guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, I know you guys got a really cool book. Um, it's kind of coming out progressively here. Um, so for my audience that may or may not be familiar with who you guys are and what you guys do, can you give like a little bit of a background on um, how you guys kind of got into the space and kind of got interested in blockchain? Sure. Mansur, do you want to start? No, ladies first. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, my background is in computer science. Uh, I did my PhD in security and privacy. Um, and kind of run around the world, traveled a lot, uh, and moved countries. And at some point, I, uh, while doing my PhD still, I decided that I want to be in the Silicon Valley and kind of move there full time. I lived part time in Berlin, part time in Silicon Valley. So I started looking for a job there. Uh, and I found a really cool job uh, as a VP of uh, security and privacy in a pretty good startup that got acquired for a very, a very big money later on. Uh, but um, while I got this job offer uh, and actually signed the contract a, co a colleague of mine with whom i used to work when i was in well when i worked with mozilla uh contacted me and said well i'm no longer with mozilla and i have this new startup and i would really like to hire you and i said well i'm i'm already off the market but i'm happy to grab lunch with you and he did a really smart thing he introduced or he brought to lunch uh half of his team <laughs> and these incredible people. These were like, you know, all of this guy with blue hair, another one just wearing leather jacket and leather like biker outfit and all sort of different personalities, really smart. And we spent the whole lunch talking and then we talking about this whole kind of different world and anarchy and stuff and this cryptocurrency that will change a thing. And I had no clue. Like, I, at that point, I never heard the word Bitcoin in my life, probably, or even if I, if I did, I heard it as a, you know, the drug thing. Um, mm. But the people were so incredibly smart. And I was like, I really want to stay with them. I really want to kind of learn what they are doing and what is this magical thing. 
and that's how it started really. So I got hired by Blockstream, uh, which is one of the kind of still uh, hotter startups in the blockchain space, specifically in Bitcoin space. And uh, so that's where it started for me. And later on, two years later, I kind of saw the opportunity and potential of uh, blockchain and distributed ledgers that is not limited just to cryptocurrencies. And that's uh, when I kind of moved from Blockstream to uh, Hyperledger, where I'm still director of ecosystem and I'm kind of exploring the potential of b uh, blockchain and distributed ledgers beyond cryptocurrencies. Very cool. It sounds like a fun background. Yeah. And on my way, I met Mansoor, so, you know, my life is fulfilled mm. now. <laughs> Very cool. Mansoor, what about you? I think Mansoor froze. Oh, he's frozen. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll have to wait for him to come back in. But <laughs> no, how do you like it at Hyperledger? Oh, uh, I do like it a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting job. Given that, you know, my role is to connect uh, different companies to talk to each other mm -hmm. and kind of have a very broad overview of what is happening in the space every day is different like you know one day i'll be working with a healthcare company another day i'll be working with uh legal teams somewhere else i teach a lot of or like help big companies uh get involved with open source which is also a really big part of uh, what i'm passionate about and my yeah, son, you're right back sorry yeah dropped out i don't know how yeah, yeah. Um, I, think it, I think it's about your turn yeah wait are we still talking about how we got here Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. My story is not as entertaining as Marta's. Um, <laughs> right now, I'm doing a PhD at uh, the University of Cambridge, um, and I'm focusing on a combination of blockchains and trusted execution environments, uh, which is also kind of how I got involved in blockchains in the first place. Um, before I came to Cambridge, I was a researcher at um, ETH Zurich, um, and I was looking at the security of these trusted execution environments, which are basically, you know, secure chips that you put next to your CPU to do sensitive operations, some sort of encryption or storage or something like that. Um, and while I was doing the research for that, uh, we realized that we needed a way to um, sort of attest to the integrity of things in a network setting, not just on one computer. Um, and that's the first time I came across a blockchain. So my introduction was weirdly enough, not via Bitcoin. It was via trying to solve a, effectively a, a distributed ledger technology problem. Um, so bit, did a bit of a backwards entry. Um, read up a bit on Bitcoin. Um, never really got involved in cryptocurrencies, really. Uh, I was always a lot more interested in enterprise blockchain and permission blockchains in general. Um, then, uh, once I got done with my research stint at ETH, I thought it would be a cool idea to continue working on, um, trusted execution environments. Um, and I thought that there was a lot of scope for combining those with blockchains that we hadn't explored in ETH, uh, applied for a PhD, um, got in here and I've been looking at it ever since. And Sweet. I must say that Mansoor is doing his PhD with one of the most brilliant people in uh, whole computer science, not only uh, cryptocurrency space. Mm -hmm. Ross Anderson is like a legend. 
yeah. I was lucky enough to have him as a reviewer of my PhD thesis, but, nice. um, you know, doing a PhD, What's his name? Ross Anderson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. So Mansour is, has to clearly be a very special <laughs> person to be doing a PhD with him. Ross yeah, that's awesome, man. Main claim to fame is this book. Um, it's kind of considered the Bible of security engineering. Um, awesome. And so when I was giving my interview for the PhD, I was expecting to be drilled on like the technicalities of trusted execution environments, maybe some consensus algorithms. He didn't ask me a single computer science question in like two hours. He talked about politics and he asked me questions on economics and he asked me questions on political science. Mm -hmm. And I thought I completely thanked it until I realized like when he accepted me and we had a chat about like, why didn't you ask me a single computer science question? He's like, you can learn those things. I wanted to see if you have a broader perspective. And if you read his papers, you will see that he's one of those rare researchers who can combine many different fields into one coherent piece. Um, which makes his work amazing. Yeah, I'm sure he'd be inter interested in broader topics as well, being like talking about computer science all the time. You know, it probably gets a, it's a little boring. You get a little stuck in a rut. So I wouldn't imagine, or I do imagine that <laughs> he'd want to talk about other things with you regarding that. How I mean, did you and Marta meet actually? Huh. Well, it's, I, I think that we first met uh, when you were working with Talis, right? Uh, uh, we were, no, we met at, uh, the Hyperledger meetup that you were organizing and I was oh, speaking. Right. Yeah, that was true. But you were still with, uh, working for yeah. Talix at that point. So, uh, Mansur actually, uh, worked, worked back then and works with a guy that, uh, I happened to live with and happened to be married to. So that was basically oh, it. Tell, telling me about my, my husband was telling me about this really smart PhD student that he has part time and he always kind of tries to pick people from Ross's team. Uh, and I said, well, this is a really cool person. And why, about, how about, uh, Mansur talks about the consensus, uh, which is the, yeah, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now it sounds silly, but, uh, I had this mock example about, uh, trying to order pizzas in a company using a blockchain. Um, mm -hmm to sort of illustrate how, uh, you know, enterprise blockchains at that time weren't very good at managing identity. Um, they still uh, aren't. They, they still, still aren't. aren't. No. <laughs> uh, and so my talk was called Pit Census. Yeah. It was a good talk though. It's, yeah, Mansur actually worked on a very interesting consensus algorithm um, that uh, kind of improves uh, the state of the art with, uh, of many of the distributed ledgers. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to say a bit about it? Yeah. yeah, you can elaborate on that if you want. Yeah, so um, the algorithm that, this was in the first year of my PhD, um, we created an algorithm called Robust Round Robin. Um, mm -hmm. And basically the idea behind Robust Round Robin was instead of trying to choose a minor from the set of all the network participants every single time, which is very wasteful and which requires you to talk to a lot more nodes than you need to talk to. Um, we thought that we would just have a default ordering. You know, if you mine the block just now, you are not mining until everyone else has mined again. Right. So you have this right. round robin thing going on. Um, of course it can't be exactly round robin because you know, if one node is offline, then your entire network goes down, for example. 
So we built in some resilience uh, by having a very lightweight consensus protocol on top of the round robin ordering. Um, and yeah, we, we had some amazing results. Like we were doing maybe 4,000, 5,000 transactions per second on like one megabyte size blocks. Um, we sort of stopped, however, at like writing the paper and getting it submitted to conferences. Um, just because I think other things took my time rather than making it into a full-fledged coded up project uh, mm. like this textbook. Is I, it for I, proof of work nodes? Uh, it's for, so you could use proof of work. Um, initially, we started doing it for um, long-term identities, so any kind of identity. You know, use mm -hmm. your credit card, use your mobile phone number. As long as okay. your system had a identity, we could use it. It could be proof of stake as well. Um, that was long term that you cannot forge very quickly. Um, you could use it. Mm -hmm. It's very agnostic to the identity mechanism. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like there's a lot of developments and a lot of theories coming out on what to do for consensus with a lot of these blockchains. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, we know of all the issues that Bitcoin has had, um, or the problems that have slowed it down, the problems that have slowed down, like Ethereum. Um, there's all these different ideas on, like, you know, how to scale these platforms, make them more interoperable, um, make them uh, not so expensive, not have high gas prices or slow transaction times. Mm. Um, I feel like there's like new ones coming out every single day. Like I check the news like every once in a while and there's someone has a new idea on what to do um, on how to solve these issues or create a better form of consensus. And it, it just feels like oversaturated in a way. Not, not like it's bad, but like just there's so much out there that you don't know what to zero in on. Yeah, that that's is... exactly where, where our book is coming, actually. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it actually came out of, um, I, I, well, it, Mansoor started it. I just joined because I'm lucky to know him. But it did start <laughs> with realizing, uh, but for realization for both of us independently, that it is not really about it's impossible to learn the technology and learn coding because something that is really popular today in a year's time will be completely redundant but mm -hmm. distributed ledger technologies are a way of thinking it's a different way of designing systems and how can we teach people and help people understand how to think about distributed ledgers and how to think in distributed systems terms rather than saying you know oh you have to absolutely go for this consensus mechanism because we happen to love you know this company or another consensus mechanism because a friend of ours designed it right mm -hmm. yeah and uh, sort of going back to the point of that there's a lot of consensus algorithms like if i'm looking at my um zotero which is like a bibliography manager i have 150 papers in the consensus category um and like there's a good reason for that uh, and that is that Consensus algorithms have so many different trade-off dimensions. Um, like it's not just a simple matter of does is this one the fastest, right? It's not. It's not like designing CPUs where you where you have a clear benchmark to test against. Um, there's just like considerations around how do you do identity, how how what are your security thresholds, um, do you want latency, uh, do you want low latency, do you want high throughput? Like there's just so many dimensions that. Right. I think that they all serve a purpose. I am not sure how many of those purposes are real problems that we need to solve. Yeah, that, that is a good thing to mention. Like, they're problems, but are they like actual real world problems that we have to solve right now? 
Yeah. Um, you know, is it something that is um, necessary for, you know, blockchain to be more commercialized, more used? Because um, I think there's a lot of things we nitpick and we focus on that aren't necessarily important, but there are definitely other things that um, are vitally important for the industry to solve. But I think that's probably a good segue into your guys' book and everything that you guys are working on here um, with permissioned blockchains in, in action. Um, you guys want to tell me a little bit about the book and what it's, um, or like the purpose of the book, like why you guys are putting it together? Yeah, uh, I mean, Marta started talking about it. Um, so this came out, at least I started working on it about a year and a half ago. Um, mm -hmm. I was sort of frustrated at having to learn things via medium blog posts and Reddit messages and things like that. Uh, I couldn't find like a good um, coherent piece of work that taught me, okay, these are the concepts you need to know. Like, you know, you've got, you've got standard books for like security engineering here, which if you read this, even if the technology is like 15 years out of date, you understand all the fundamental concepts you need to know to design, let's say a secure application. Um, but I couldn't find anything like that for permission blockchains. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was thinking about it. I started writing it. I was contacted by our publishers, Manning. Um, and then as I started writing it, I realized that I am like, I am good at understanding the technology, but I really didn't have a very good grasp of what the business sector is looking for. As you said, what are the problems that really need to be solved? Right. Um, and then I realized I know this brilliant person whose job it is to interface with businesses um, and get the techies in touch with the CEOs. Um, so I gave Marta a call and discussed if she wants to join in. Um, so generally what we've tried to do is we try to focus on concepts, as I said, but also we have coding exercises um, and we like our readers to go hands-on and design an application but we've designed them in such a way that even if you completely use a different, uh, you use a completely different technology stack, you should still be able to do those exercises and get the same um, things out of it. So we expect it to have a you know long shelf life rather than you know the medium post shelf life of a few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's very true, and that's why I was so excited to join Mansur in writing it. Uh, because we do want to um, dive into what is happening now. You know, we both are in the space and obviously um, it's always fun to share some stories and some uh, anecdotes of what is happening and fights that are internally um, mm. happening. But the, the most important thing really is how can you learn to distinguish distributed ledger technologies from one another? How do you choose them? Uh, there are a lot of books that talk about use cases and kind of business studies and things like that. But if you're a developer, if you are looking for a job and or want to change jobs to be in DLT space, you don't really need those use cases. What you need to do is show up and say, I'm going to design a system and it will be the best possible system out of the technologies that you have, right? The same way that you choose if you're going to be writing your code in C or C++ or Python, and you have a good argument why it is. And I feel that still today, because it's such a young field, um, DLTs are 
basically the, the reason why you use a certain DLT is because you kind of learn that the, 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 the experts in the room learn that DLT as the first one or because there's some hidden incentive that they really want to support this company. There's not just like a valid technical uh, justification for choosing the right technology. Yep, good point. Right. Yep. So what are some of the concepts like in this book that you're kind of running through and teaching people? Is it mostly just with the, um, the different type of languages that distinguish the projects or the differences between like one being a blockchain, one being uh, a tangle or um, like what, what are the <laughs> different kind of things that um, you guys uh, emphasize? So what we basically did uh, and the book evolved. I mean, you know, the thing that we're writing now is a very different beast. We actually yes. had to re rewrite for like we were five chapters into the book and then we had to go um, back and rewrite all five chapters because we realized that we need a better story and we need a much more interesting and engaging um, story because, you know, with a book, there are so many books out there. And yeah. it is not really like if I buy a computer science book, I want to get something out of it. Not just, you know, it's not, not a novel. It's, it's supposed to be quite entertaining to read, but you know, you're not going to just sit there on the couch and read about quorum or Cordo or hyperledger fabric, right? You're, you right. want to learn something. So the first premise of the book was really to give technical skills to teach, you know, if you're using consensus algorithm, what does it mean that it's a pluggable consensus algorithm? Or if you're deploying a network, what does it mean to have several nodes? How do you create the governance models and so on? And obviously for that, we did need to choose a technology and we kind of went with Quorum uh, because we felt like this is the easiest way to go um, down the line. But we also teach a bit of fabric. We also teach a bit of uh, indie and so on, depending on the use case. Because obviously Quorum, as any of those, is just a, a means to achieve a goal rather than teaching that particular technology. Um, so I think that what we are doing is we are kind of with our quite broad knowledge of various technologies saying what is the common, common kind of themes, common uh, topics that we need to explain to the user, right? So it doesn't matter if it's a pluggable consensus in Hyperledger Salto, Hyperledger Fabric or Quorum, it's a pluggable consensus. So how do you explain that? Yeah, so, gotcha. yeah the, the analogy that uh, one, of my, one of our publishers used was um, like when you're learning to drive a car, um, you learn on one car, right? You don't, you don't change the training car every single week. So you start on one car, and then once you've learned how to drive that car, you can easily generalize to other things, as long as you've not focused too much on the specifics of that one car. So Quorum uh, mm -hmm. is kind of the training wheels uh, that we use initially. So the first eight, nine chapters have a lot of Quorum in it, um, primarily because it's bog standard uh, Ethereum. Right? Uh, it's just a fork of the Go Ethereum client uh, with some um, permissioned uh, consensus algorithms below it. So we start off with that to explain the fundamentals, like the absolute fundamentals, like what is a blockchain? Um, why do we need consensus? Uh, how do you have identities? And 
what is a smart contract? How do I code those things? Um, once we do that, then we sort of go into individual um, sort of trade-off dimensions. So the eighth chapter, for example, is privacy. Um, so once we start talking about privacy, we say, well, there are many ways you can have um, private um, information um, shared on a blockchain. One is the quorum way of doing it. You have private transactions. You've got the fabric way of doing it, where you have channels. Um, you can do zero knowledge proofs. Um, so then we present all the options. We give the trade-off dimensions, and then we give them like simple exercises they can do to sort of compare those approaches. Um, so gotcha. it's also because personally, I don't like reading just bland theory. I like having something to do after I've read the theory. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what we've sort of tried to do. Every chapter has a theory section followed by immediately followed by a practice section where you apply the theory. That's good. It gives someone someone ability to kind of like put that applied what they're learning from the book. So do you think quorum is the easiest place for people to start when jumping into this? No, not necessarily. I mean, it is the most standard, I would say, um, just okay. because it is very compliant with Ethereum. And if you're going to go down the route of teaching people solidity, that's the place you want to be. Um, with other frameworks, there might be some compatibility issues because they've got different underlying technologies, whereas Quorum is literally just a fork. Yeah, well, it's probably smart because I mean, Ethereum's the biggest DApp platform out there, most popular, coolest DApp platform out there, probably not gonna change anytime soon. So it is probably a good idea to educate people on that first before you know, mm -hmm. luring them into all the other things that they can do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's also this will be a sign of times, right? Because uh, when we started writing this book, uh, Hyperledger Besu, previously known as Pantheon, that uh, is an Ethereum um, Ethereum client that allows you to both run on a public and permissioned networks, which is quite cool, right? It just combines the two worlds. It was not there. I mean, Consensus was, was working on it, but it wasn't an established project. So we had to go with something and we considered several technologies and just went with the one that kind of fit the purpose without uh, sacrificing teaching other things. So you will learn about self-sovereign identity and uh, Hyperledger Indie. You will learn about, you know, what is Corda and how it is not a blockchain, but it's a very interesting platform and all those things. Okay, very cool. Um, who, so who are you targeting with the book? Like, who's your audience? Is it someone that's younger, that's, you know, kind of getting into the space that wants to understand, like, how they can get involved, what they can build? Or is it more designed for someone that's, you know, a seasoned um, computer scientist that doesn't know the space, but that's trying to get into it, or both? Or what are your guys' thoughts? So... Interestingly, I've Mansur can speak to to our you know MQR, um, which is the, the staple term apparently of all uh, books that you write. Uh, but MQR is minimally qualified reader. Yes, for the readers. Um, and uh, so, so that Mansur will tell you a bit more about that. But what I wanted to mention is. Uh, our publisher has this really interesting process where after a certain amount of chapters, they give it to the users or sorry, to the readers uh, to, uh, to read it and give um, proper reviews and analyze the book. 
and these readers vary because it's these are volunteers right so we had people who are super um experienced developers in something and have some kind of interest in blockchain we had young people that don't know anything but want to learn about distributed ledgers and they all had very nice things to say uh, about the book. And it felt like, although we have someone in mind, the book spoke to basically a very broad group of people. But yeah, Mansoor, you created the minimum qualified reader. Yeah, so um, basically the only requirement really um, is that you have coded at least a few times, right? That we're not gonna teach you, you know, uh, how what is a loop. We're not gonna teach you what is an if statement. What are, what are switch cases? Um, you know, we kind of assume that you know the very fundamentals of coding up simple programs. So anyone from like a first year undergrad computer science degree onwards should be able to easily follow. Um, and we kind of decided to draw the line there. Uh, we could have, you know, very easily expanded the book further and also mm -hmm. taught the fundamentals of programming. But then we thought that that is just going to sort of dilute the book a lot. Um, yeah. We thought it was better to just set a threshold so that everyone has a common base knowledge and then we can build up from there. Right. No, that's smart. That makes sense too. Um, and I have a lot of students especially tech students, science students, um, comp sci students uh, that are, they listen to the podcast because a lot of them, so this gets distributed to a lot of universities as well via email. Um, so a lot of them will like, get back to me on this stuff and they're constantly asking about like more books or more information on like the industry and how you can get involved because there's so many job opportunities opening up for, um, for computer scientists and blockchain to be able to develop and build and, um, be creative. So uh, I know that they'll find this very beneficial in a lot of ways. Um, and I know that you guys are releasing it progressively, right? Yeah, it's a really cool system. I've never seen it before. And I was quite surprised when, when we were offered that uh, given kind of, so for, to the books that have very good reviews after that first period, uh, Manning mm -hmm. uh, has an uh, Manning early publishing access um, Access, Early access publishing. Uh, yeah, uh, which is a system where you basically subscribe and get a chapter at a time uh, that will then end up in the book. So it's kind of, you know, a bit like, kind of, you know, an RPG game or something like that, where you kind of follow the, the writers and obviously on us, it's a big um, commitment that we will finish the book and we will be delivering the chapters as we go and they will be high quality because you don't want to give people just some you know random blog right. posts um but these chapters go through the review go through the editors and everything so basically what happens is you kind of have the books spread out over time but you get the freshest information and you also get to give feedback to the authors so hopefully those people who, who get it will then be able to contact us and say you know i really like this thing but this other thing it's not really clear you should rewrite it. So it's like you co-authored the book in a way. Yeah. Right. We've already had some pretty good feedback from uh, not just good in the sense of this is a good book, but also in the sense of you guys should look into improving this. So for example, we reworked a lot of the coding examples after the initial round of reviews to make them even clearer. Um, so 
yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this process of progressively releasing each chapter. Yeah, I haven't seen a book take advantage of something like that before. So when I saw that you guys were doing that, I was like, it's really interesting because, you know, you can, instead of having to put out one whole book or try and spend all this time putting the, together a book, you know, in an industry that's moving so fast and that could be outdated six months from now, a year from now, very easily, um, yeah. you can do it chapter by chapter, update as you go, get reviews on, you know, how to, to improve it. Um, it's an interesting way to release a book for sure. Um, the, the I, I imagine other, it's working. The only other book I've seen being released that way is my supervisor's textbook. He does the same thing where he yeah. releases one chapter at a time. And then like, um, I think he wrote it over a year and then he compiled all of this into a textbook. So I'm kind of happy that, think, sorry. What no, I was just gonna say, do you think that'd be a better standard for publishing books rather than right. just taking all this time to produce something like, unless it's like fiction, I don't yeah. know why you'd want to do some non-fictional work, spend a ton of time on it and then realize that stuff is outdated <laughs> by the time it's published. I, I definitely think that this is a better approach just because you have immediate feedback, right? Uh, right. People coming to you and telling you like, this is not working. Don't invest more time into this, for example. Um, yeah, I don't know why it's not more widely adopted. Uh, seems like the obvious thing to do. Yeah, well, I think that it's in interesting because we are kind of by now used to the culture of blog posts and medium posts, right? So it is a bit like that, but delivering content that is much higher quality and goes through the review process and so on. So indeed, it kind of speaks to, at least to me, as a person who likes to read stuff, that I know that it's, you know, it's like any kind of subscription box, right? You kind of get excited around 14th of every month because you know that they send you this, you know, mm raised box and you'll get your four snacks every uh, every two weeks or something like that so it's kind of it's really nice um engagement with the authors as well as just getting you content that normally like you wouldn't be able to get mm -hmm. yeah gotcha it's, i when i first heard it it sounded very similar to me how um academic workshops work where mm -hmm. you know you submit a draft which might be like two pages and then you go to the workshop and then people grill you on it and make you feel stupid because you made a lot of mistakes and then you get like feedback that you incorporate and you go through this huge process over like six seven months going back and forth with your reviewers until you finally produce a paper uh, it's kind of like that but with the open internet as the reviewer yeah, it's it's almost like they're investing in the book because you, you're saying that this book's going to come out over a period of time and you have like two chapters released that they can, you know, pay to have access to immediately. But it's almost like they're paying, investing and reviewing and giving feedback into the book as it's being published. I, I'm just surprised it's not more popular and I'm surprised I hadn't heard of it a long time ago. It sounds like just a, a better way of doing it overall. Yeah. Most of the, quite a few Manning books are in, in that we have that process uh, in place, but uh, Manning Publishing is probably one of the more um, elite publishing houses when it comes to uh, technical books. So, um, you know, I guess they're innovative in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I mean, it requires oh, yeah. a base level of infrastructure management on their part, right? Like Manning has to host this book. Um, they've got this interactive live book where you can, uh, where readers can immediately like type inline comments and send it over and we receive them. 
Um, and then we can all, we also sort of notify the readers when we've resolved their comments and things like that. Um, so it requires some technical expertise on the part of the publisher and that might be liking, like that could be one factor which explains why this is not uh, widespread. Yeah, probably why. Um, but by the time you guys publish it, are you guys going to have any physical copies or is it going to be completely yeah. digital? Oh, di okay. Yeah. yeah, it's it's both. I mean, the early access is kind of you contributing to getting access to the book and then being able to contribute back. But at the end of the day, it will be a thing that will live hopefully for many years on people's shelves, either digital version of it or physical version of it. You will be able to touch the paper and yes. uh, smell the book. <laughs> so, Very cool, uh, yeah. I think if you sign up for the early access program, uh, I think the default option is that you will also get a physical book uh, once we release all the chapters. Very cool. Yeah, there's no substitute for a real book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So other than, other than the book uh, that you guys have been working on, um, I'm curious on what your guys' thoughts are in general on what's happening in the, in the blockchain space. Um, obviously we have the, the COVID pandemic, we have um, a whole bunch of money being pumped into economies worldwide to keep, you know, economies from collapsing, uh, a lot of inflation going on for a long time, a lot of interesting events going on that could be, you know, potential like black swan type of deals that could maybe depress the markets even more um, or maybe make things just better or change things. Um, it's an interesting time. 2020 has been an interesting year yeah. for sure. Um, but in terms of blockchain, the state of the industry, which is an interesting point, um, what are your guys' overall thoughts on it? Um, I know that Marta and I disagree quite strongly on, on our outlook <laughs> and what we think they, where, the, where we think the industry is going. So well, I'll, I'll, I'll give Marta the first go. That oh, I'll go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> criticize all of what I said. Um, so, uh, well, a couple of things here. I mean, had you asked me that question three months ago, the answer would have been slightly different to what it is now. Uh, I think the industry as such uh, definitely is in enterprise world is incredibly skeptical. Um, we've went through the kind of growth and overhyping the technology to the point where we've had all of those POCs and, you know, everybody now loves to uh, quote the, uh, I think it was Deloitte's uh, statistic that 96% of uh, POCs that were started in 2016 no longer exist. And obviously they won't because proof of concepts are not supposed to be turned into products most of the time. Uh, so it's kind of a natural thing, but it's kind of amplified to tell the world that, you know, blockchain is not solution to everything. You'll hear all those things. I mean, every single time I go to a conference, almost every person at the blockchain conference will introduce themselves as, and I'm a blockchain skeptic, or I'm a blockchain minimalist. And I'm like, so why are you in this space, right? Not to say that I'm incredibly like you know, hyped about it, but I think that we went through the phase of overexcitement and now we are crashing because the things that have been implemented have not been implemented in the right way. The use case was not right. You know, there are so many things. And so instead of blaming 
ourselves and ourselves going too much into hype, we blame the technology. And that's quite sad to me. I am not very happy about it. Now, the other part of it is that um, with COVID, uh, two, two kind of, again, two paths there. One, all of a sudden, almost all, like I've heard talks two, three, maybe even four months ago, um, and these same talks are now being rephrased as solution to COVID. So, you know, COVID uh, or says supply chain in COVID times, uh, transportation in COVID times, uh, financial transactions in COVID times. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody trying to grasp this opportunity to hype what they're doing because of global pandemic. That's, you know, from moral perspective, I'm not okay with it. I understand that we are living in a world of recession and a terrible one. So the final thing, and I think that's the one that we disagree with on with Mansur, is that um, I feel like we've been told uh, by uh, especially kind of the uh, cryptocurrency world that had we have uh, had we have um, the uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain distributed ledgers specifically uh, in uh, 2008, uh, none of the financial crisis would have happened. We would be able to trace things and track things and so on. Well, we are in 2020, um, 12 years later, blockchain is a big thing. A lot of banks are using it for reconciliation. You can have the KYC processes and so on and so forth. And we are hitting a recession that is worse than the 1920 recession. So I'm not sure how much of the promise is being delivered um, right now. Right. So, so I agree with like almost everything Mata said. Um, I do think that we had way too much of a hype um, um, three years ago, maybe. Um, and I do think that it is actually better for the technology that the hype has died down because now people have sort of gotten down to designing serious solutions to serious problems. And that's always mm -hmm. good for technology. Like my hope is that blockchain becomes as boring a word as SQL. And people are just using the technology as it's supposed to be used rather than talking about it in marketing slides. Right. Um, the point that I have a slight disagreement with, uh, with Marta is that, um, I do think that there is some utility to having these cryptocurrencies. Uh, as I said initially, I'm not really involved in the cryptocurrency space, but to me, the problem seems to be not that uh, we don't have better means than sort of traditional financial systems. Uh, the problem seems to be that we don't have widespread enough adoption. So even if the technology is there, we have Bitcoin, we've got you know Zcash and all those cryptocurrencies. We don't mm -hmm. have um, sort of point of sale adoption. Uh, and without that, um, the technology is just a piece of paper, right? Right. Uh, and if I look at my Twitter feed, which is filled with cryptocurrency enthusiasts, that seems to be the resonating argument, uh, which is that this is what we've been talking about. So they see this upcoming financial crisis as further confirmation of a need for a cryptocurrency-based system. Um, whereas the skeptics see it as, like Marta said, uh, oh, we have this, but it hasn't helped. So let's abandon that project. Um, I, I think I sit somewhere in middle. Um, I 
I don't see cryptocurrencies as replacing this traditional financial system, but um, I think having some sort of a centrally banked digital currency would have helped a lot, uh, you know, especially as we've seen with these um, emergency payments that the US government was trying to do to citizens. Um, that would have been so much easier to manage if we have a CBDC um, and people could just literally withdraw from their wallets whenever they wanted to. Uh, it would also give you a lot more transparency into, all, into where all this bailout money is going to. Um, and I think that's one of the root causes why our financial system seems to be so unstable over the last few decades is that we don't have much visibility into where right. all these quantitative easing money is going. Yeah, I, I think we're going to get to the point relatively soon where central banks will more seriously take a look at what they can do with uh, with digital currencies um, at a national level. It's not likely that the whole world is going to just start operating on Bitcoin or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll have its place, but you know, it's likely that the central banks will, you know, stay intact to a degree or that, you know, big tech will overtake big banking at some point and just, you'll see a national version of a digital currency um, for, for different countries. And the People's Bank of China is already doing pilot tests for that. And they're expecting to have something out by 2022 for the Beijing Olympics. Um, you know, and there's a lot of other countries working on that as well. So I don't think we're too far away from actually seeing that become more of a reality. I mean, China's a good place to look at uh, just because they seem to be technologically ahead of everybody by like half a decade sometimes. I remember when they first came out with the, um, the, uh, the chip card readers for the, for the debit cards and credit cards. I was in Canada and I'd never seen one in my life. And they're like, oh, we've had them for like two years and Shenzhen's has had them for three years before us. And now it's the most common thing to use in the U.S. when you're paying. Um, but there, they're completely cashless and we'll eventually get fairly cashless in the U.S. and other yeah. places. Well, um, I, so I, I, I actually genuinely don't use cards. Like I'm, I'm sort of that paranoid <laughs> person who uses cash. Yeah. For everything. Um, and I, that's what scares me about CBDCs. On the one hand, I really do support the idea uh, that you, know, you can have a more direct relation with the federal bank of your country. Um, on the other hand, it seems like the ultimate surveillance state. Uh, you know, you go from surveillance capitalism all the way to surveillance totalitarianism. Um, right. So it really matters how each country goes about designing their CBDCs. Um, well, right. I think that a couple of things. Uh, one is just a fun fact. Um, in fact, National Bank of Cambodia uh, is issuing as CBDC uh, based on Hyperledger Iroha, and they they are go they have it uh, adopted pretty widely without uh, kind of even advertising it uh, already. But they are going officially live um, in June, uh, and everybody will be using the, uh, the their digital currency. So uh, China, yes, but sometimes I've been observing that's a general comment you were asking about um, where the industry is going. I found working with various governments that the governments of small countries are much mm. more open to adopting things and moving forward. So like I'm on the, uh, the technical advisory board for uh, government of Bermuda. And they're like, we want blockchain everywhere. Everything is blockchain. Same with Dubai. You have Smart Dubai, where by 2021, I think, we're supposed to, they are supposed to have everything digitized, uh, smart cities. And a big part of it is blockchain. 
along with other technologies, but that. Um, I think that uh, to the point of privacy, I, in parallel to introducing uh, uh, CBDCs, we will also see even more widespread of uh, self-sovereign identities. And that way we will be able to kind of preserve some of that privacy, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a lot easier for a smaller country to move on something like that and you know have less bureaucratic issues get in the way. Um, I mean, unfortunately for a much larger first world country, um, you know, you're not having Christine Lagarde and Jerome Powell sit down and say, look what they're doing in Bermuda or Cambodia. Let's get the world to do this. You know, they're doing it at their own pace if they are at all, um, unfortunately. But I mean, for smaller countries, you know, even down here in Latin America, I mean, there's tons and tons of interest in it. And Colombia is pushing it very, very heavily. Um, I know Chile has been pushing it very heavily as well. Um, they're much smaller <laughs> in general compared to, you know, these bigger first world countries, Europe, Asia. Uh, North America, but um, I, we're definitely starting to see that in a lot of places, a lot of smaller countries. So that's also exciting. But I mean, that's just from the crypto side of it, the, the cryptocurrency side of it too. But I think where the real value is, and I'm sure you guys would agree, is what in blockchain or in what you're able to build and create solutions for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're living in very interesting times. And definitely, um, you know, with COVID, um, there are, you know, everybody's jumping on it and trying to build solutions. The things that are kind of quite convincing to me are um, things around self-sovereign identity and especially with the uh, immunity passports, uh, being able to use verifiable credentials and uh, zero knowledge proofs to prove certain things about yourself and do the um, um, the, the tracking, kind of the, the, the uh, connection tracking or whatever you call it, okay. in a way that is privacy preserving. Uh, these are quite interesting things. And, you know, with, with uh, the, the digital currencies, I mean, most places here in England are not accepting uh, cash anymore uh, because, it's, you know, it's wrong, it's dirty, and, it, you know, you get virus from it. Um, right. So we are, I think that if we are talking about long-term changes in uh, our existence due to COVID, uh, that will be one of the bigger ones. Yeah, I definitely think it's helping push in a lot of ways. I know there's, um, it shouldn't be the, the reason necessarily why everyone's starting to like think about this stuff, but it is kind of a blessing in disguise for the industry because it is forcing um, hands a little bit to take a closer look at these technologies. Um, like I just had a elected official from Utah on podcast um, earlier this week and they are talking about how all these issues with COVID have definitely forced um, other elected officials across the states in the U.S. to start looking at these technologies. How can people get a marriage license or get an ID or, um, or vote in their state or their county um, when they're stuck at home or they can't go anywhere? You know, how can they have a digital identity? Um, and easy to do it with the blockchain. There's a lot of um, solutions that have been worked on for a while now with that stuff and now they're just kind of coming to light because we have a real worldwide use case uh, for the first time to apply it so um, I think it's kind of a blessing in disguise in some ways I, I think I think I agree with you that it's sort of pushing the hand but I am also quite worried um, in the sense that 
you know, whenever you try to um, implement a solution in a hurry, um, you tend to make mistakes. Um, and when you're going for say efficiency, the first thing that gets dropped out is all the nice things like having privacy or um, having some sort of fallback mechanism in case you lose your keys, right? So uh, even well-established systems like Gmail, if you forget your password and you lose access to your mobile phone number, it's nearly impossible for you to get back into your uh, Gmail account. Um, but imagine that happening on the scale of all your financial assets, your life is over. Um, mm -hmm. So I am scared that we will push the technology as a solution to underlying societal problems where we don't care enough about privacy, where we don't care enough about helping people who can't operate technology very well. Um, mm. And this will just be exacerbated once we get rid of the human elements that right now make it tolerable. Yeah, I, you're probably right on that and probably that probably will happen, unfortunately. Um, but you know, solutions come out of problems. And I mean, if you look at computers, for example, I mean, computers solve a problem and then someone finds a way to take advantage of computers with viruses or malware. And then someone finds out how to stop viruses and malware. Um, and then someone creates ads and someone finds a way to stop ads. Like there's always this like constant innovation within different niches of technology. And I think that, you know, whatever comes out of this with blockchain, um, even if there is some negatives to it, there will obviously be a lot of push for solutions to those problems. It's a weird way that technology seems to work, but, it's probably what's going to end up happening. Yeah. But there are certain mistakes that can't be undone. Uh, the staple example here is the internet, right? And you probably mm -hmm. have heard many times that uh, DLTs and blockchain is an opportunity to fix what was wrong with internet and uh, self-sovereign identity is an answer to it. So there are mistakes that can't be undone. And with DLT specifically, whatever you know the the value the, the, the um, uh, weight of uh, mistakes is much more significant because if you roll out the system it's there forever and that's something that we are like i see that all the time we are not used to think that yes. once you do something it's there and it's not even like your stupid facebook video that you'll take down and you know, maybe someone copied it, but you hope that nobody did it. No, right. like you've done it. And now everybody will know that you were drunk and dancing on a table last night, right? It's, it's a very different model of thinking. I mean, we don't, we don't have solutions for very basic things, right? Like if someone comes into your house, puts a knife to your throat and tells you to transfer all your coins, how do you roll that back? Um, you know, what is the mechanism for doing um, reclaiming funds that have been lost to theft? Uh, these are, you know, hard meat space questions that we don't have answers to. Um, and I think putting this on the blockchain makes the problem much worse than it already is. Right. Well, the problem with blockchain, I don't know if it's a problem or not, just reality is the permanency uh, yeah. that it brings in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I think when you have something with that kind of permanency, um, I think you're just kind of asking for some of those problems to eventually happen. It's not like they're never going to happen, just hopefully not on a, a big scale. Um, but even if it did, I imagine people would still learn from some of those things, but it, it'll be interesting how it all shakes out. It's definitely hard to predict with how diverse the space has gotten.
Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing then that Cambodia is implementing it before the U.S. federal government. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bad. You know, I, I guess you know. Uh, it's kind of fun. I, I really like writing this whole book because you have to think for forward, right? It's not like oh, we are just going to describe this snippet of time right now and the snippet of technology we want to do something bigger so it's really cool being involved with it and constantly thinking okay what will happen in five years time will this book be relevant how can we make it relevant it's really good kind of cold shower and kind of a step back to look at this whole thing and say is this real is this not real how how will it shake out and obviously put some predictions there, but also be very realistic about the value of um, the space and the industry. Right, right. Um, I think that's about all the questions for the most part that I had, um, but before we like kind of wrap up, kind of to end it, um, what are your guys' thoughts on where the industry you think will end up in the next five years or 10 years? Because I know, we have, you know, Bitcoin's been around for about a decade. Um, this um, blockchain, fintech, DAP, whatever you want to call it, industry ecosystem has kind of been around for like half a decade. We've seen tons of progress, tons of developments, use cases, ups and downs. Um, and I know 2020 is a crazy year. <laughs> um, but in terms of like the next five years, or the next 10 years, maybe by the end of this decade, where do you think we'll end up with this technology? Okay, so I'll go first then. Um, next five years, um, I don't really see a big change happening um, in the sense of uh, there will still be a, a, a critical camp and a hype camp, let's say. And mm -hmm. we'll still be having these warring factions for the next couple of years at least. Um, I do think there will be a lot of focus on uh, CBDCs uh, just because you know Libra 2.0 is going to launch um, and then all the federal banks are going to wake up and be like, oh, damn, we need to do something about this. Um, so there will be a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies again. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I think quietly, um, as Marta pointed out with Cambodia, quietly, a lot of governments and a lot of large corporations will start integrating blockchain solutions into their technology stack. Um, and perhaps in 10 years time, when those uh, integrations become critical, um, we start thinking of blockchains as you know, a, a piece of technology that has its own space, that has this defined role, and that requires a certain set of skills from anyone who's going to make applications on top of it or who's going to maintain it. So I think that the outlook for enterprise applications is pretty good. The outlook for open, permissionless blockchains is very murky. Gotcha. So I, in general, have a role of not predicting anything that is be uh, when I'm being recorded. Uh, <laughs> if I during a talk, you know, nobody will remember it within a month. But you know, this is a physical record of what I said, and I'll then. <laughs> You know, someone will remind me how silly I was uh, believing in things. Um, but one thing that I've observed uh, that is very interesting, I've been involved with uh, various venture capitals that are looking at distributed ledger startups. And 
even today, actually, I was part of a, uh, this pitch uh, session or training session, right? So they are wait. Uh, it's a demo. The demo day is coming up soon, um, and incredible change from between today and um, about a year ago when we had it last time, the first uh, season of it, was that none of the twelve companies that were presenting mentioned blockchain in their pitch. They are all core DLT is like the, the DLT is core of what they do. It's gaming. There's one for bond issuance. There is one for uh, healthcare industry. None of them would say a thing. And I felt so good about it because it felt like finally we were moving to a place where we want to solve problems and we don't want to just put a technology somewhere. And I think this is hopefully the way that we're going. And it obviously won't be like one day, you know, you will wake up and everything will change. But somewhere between now and 10 years time, we will achieve a place where uh, this is treated just like another technology, just like Mansoor said earlier, right? Nobody hypes about SQL and nobody really fights about programming languages anymore. Um, so I hope this is the, the where the world will be, and we will find good ways of uh, evaluating if we need a distributed ledger or not, and how do you want to adapt uh, the this technology to your solution? Gotcha, and I feel you too. I definitely try not to make predictions, <laughs> especially <laughs> on camera, but I do hope for a more permissionless, you know, blockchain-filled world. That'd be pretty cool to see. Um, are you guys on social media? Like, do you have Twitter, or Instagram, Facebook? How can people follow you? I've got Twitter and Instagram that I haven't opened in years. So Twitter. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I am on LinkedIn, which is probably the easiest way to catch me. Or um, I, you can put an email down at the you know, podcast notes. And I'm always happy to talk to people. I love talking cool. to people. Cool. I'll share that info in the episode uh, description as well. So people can uh, find you guys a little bit. Um, cool. Uh, guys, thanks for coming on and taking the time and everything to you know, share your thoughts on what you guys were doing with the book and, you know, on the industry. It was a fun talk. Um, really appreciate it. I know a lot of people will take some value out of this and will probably take a lot of value out of your book. Um, I'm, it's pretty interesting. I definitely like it so far too. Um, but again, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. And, have a fantastic Friday in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure talking to you. To you guys as well. <laughs>